Welcome to another segment of Through My Eyes. I'm Ralph Franzilli, your host for our series of interviews with Little Falls Vietnam veterans. I am honored to have with me today David Teal. David served with the U.S. Army in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. He was there from April of 1969 to April of 1970. David, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks My for your pleasure. service. Thank you. So, Dave, you graduated high school in 1965, mm -hmm. and you enlisted in 1968. Correct. How and why did that happen? Well, I, uh, I took uh, a couple of opportunities to um, try and get an education. Um, and <clears throat> my first year of studies was at a aeronautical technical school in Long Island. <clears throat> Excuse me. I, uh, I had always had an interest in flying. I wanted to be a pilot, uh, actually a commercial pilot. And I went there thinking that it would be a stepping stone or some, you know, basic uh, training to, you know, pursue that career. Um, and the technical portion of it just wasn't my cup of tea. Uh, I didn't have any, any technical background uh, in courses at Little Falls like engineering drawing and stuff like that. So um, it was um, something that I hadn't expected, so I, I really didn't want to continue that. And I came back home and I went to, uh, I went to school at Mohawk Valley Community College. And uh, while there, um, I joined a fraternity, which is probably a bad thing to begin with, and uh, ended up um, not doing all that well in school and thinking, what am I doing? Where am I going? You know, um, and Vietnam was going on. Everybody knew about it, uh, and I decided, um, because of the background of my family, a lot of my uncles and my father were in the military during World War II, that I would join the military and, uh, you know, try to do something a little more productive with my life. Yeah. So you knew you wanted to fly helicopters. Um, actually, no. That's kind of funny because we were. Uh, I was living at home at the time, and, and I had taken testing up in Utica at the recruiting station, and um, I went back for an interview after the testing, and he said, uh, you did so well on the test that anything we have is open to you. He said, so just go home and think about what you want to do, um, and then we'll, we'll talk in the future. I went home, and my, my dad and mom and I were sitting there watching the nightly news, and the nightly news every night mm -hmm. had had some sort of some sort of uh, uh, video uh, story about Vietnam, and uh, this particular scene showed helicopters coming in to land, and I said, "That's what I'm going to do." And I uh, went back and I got the program, so was guaranteed the program when I went in. And so it's basically it's basic it. training for a helicopter pilot, and I know you were a warrant officer, chief warrant officer, and two in the end. Is basic training the same as it would be for a regular enlisting? Oh, identical. So you went through regular basic training. Regular basic training. Where was that done? That was at Fort, uh, uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana. And yeah, I mean, there were some people in, in our unit in, in basic training that went on to helicopter flight school, but the vast majority of them were infantry, okay. infantry bound. So after Fort Polk, you went to, I think they call it primary? Yeah, primary two. Primary flight at uh, Fort Walters, Texas. Yeah, that's where most of the helicopters came out of, so, or the, the pilots. Um, what was that like? 
Uh, the, your, the, the, your, your first level of flying, learning. Oh, your first um, down a helicopter. Very, very intense classroom work. Uh -huh. um, you know, to, for maybe three or four weeks. I can't remember the exact time period, but real intensive classroom work. And then finally uh, going out on the flight line with an instructor pilot and, and just getting into the basics and, you know, learning basically how to fly the helicopter. How many hours did you have to have before you soloed? I don't recall, to be honest with you. Okay. No. So there, is there another, another level of uh, school after that first level at Fort Walters or did you go right to Vietnam from there? Uh, no, another level. I just have, had a thought about the uh, soloing. Um, I don't, I don't, there was probably a minimum, but it was really up to your instructor oh, okay. when you would solo. Okay. So, um, then from Fort, Fort Walters, Texas, we went to, uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama for advanced flight training, which, uh, took in, uh, instrument training. And then we, we got into flying Hueys and getting familiar with the, with that aircraft and, and how it, uh, you know, how it functions and what you need to so do. So they trained you on a number of different helicopters, mm -hmm. not just one in particular. Right, right. Primary flight was in a, um, a TH-55, which is a 300 Hughes reciprocal engine uh, helicopter. Then the, the instrument flight was in another recip helicopter, the um, the Bell, uh, Bell, Bell 13, which has the big bubble everybody's right. familiar with. Uh, mash that kind of thing and then of course the, the Huey in advanced So when did you actually deploy to Vietnam? It would be April of 1968 and how did you get there? So, um, I'm sorry 69 um, I was flown by uh, uh, commercial aircraft to uh, Tacoma, Washington and uh, uh, for McCord Air Force Base in Washington. We flew from there to Anchorage, Alaska, to Osaka, Japan, and then into Cameron Bay. Yeah. How was the flight over? What were you thinking about? Um, it was it? it was kind of it was a very weird flight to say say the least. I mean, there was uh, you know it was a 707 filled with fellows that were mm -hmm. on their way to Vietnam. It was a pretty quiet flight. Um, I'm sure, you know, I mean, and it's long, you know, it's like 20 some hours to get there. And uh, I don't recall my thoughts at the time, but uh, when the aircraft touched down in Cameron Bay, I do remember saying to myself, I don't know, I don't care what I have to do, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> you know, so I was. Uh, pretty determined that uh, I wanted to survive and, and get back home. So you get off the plane, what's the first thing that you, you're thinking about when you get off that plane as far as the environment's concerned and where you were? Um, well, we're just kind of, you know, being herded like little, little cattle, I guess. Um, you know, the, the uh, enlisted men were going in one direction and they took us to a different uh, barrack situation, kind of a holding area. And the thing that impressed me the most were was the the weather, the humidity, the warmth. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't terribly hot because it's right on the ocean, and the smell. I mean, just immediately there was such a difference in 
in smell of the environment. All the veterans say the same thing. Do they? That's the one thing I, I remember. Don't doubt it. The, the heat and the smell. Because it, I mean, it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Where did you actually land? Cameron Bay. Cameron Bay. And you, you ultimately ended up in Pleiku. What happened in between? Well, I was originally um, I was originally assigned to the first uh, first cab division. Um, my, that's where my orders were were sending me. But um, there were some units apparently that uh, that needed pilots more than the first cab at that particular moment, and that I got reassigned or re, I got orders cut to go to the Seventh Squadron, Seventeenth Aircraft. And um, they're based at that, you know, they were based in Pleiku at uh, uh, Holloway, I believe. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Campanari. There were two, in Pleiku, there were two separate bases. Okay. Campanari was uh, primarily Army. And, uh, so Pleiku, Pleiku is in the, was what they call the Central Highlands. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, you were trained to fly Hueys. Is that actually what you started flying when you got to Pleiku? Did you, is this something that happened right away, or was there some sort of orientation period? Um, no, basically, um, I was assigned to B Troop, and at that time, B Troop was not working out of Pleiku. They were working out of a place down on the on the coast called Fantiat, and um, that's one of the things that our that our uh, uh, organization did is is wherever they needed um, for us to be for reconnaissance we may you know get sent to here for a certain amount of time or moved somewhere else so they were down in Pantheat and um, basically all they did was uh, you know get me orientated as far as the unit was concerned and uh, put on a put on a plane and, and flown down to Fantia to join B Troop down there. And B Troop did recon? Yeah, all the, the 717th was a recon That's all unit. they did, so can you, explain, did. Can, you, can you explain basically what that mission consists of? Sure, um, we had four different helicopters, the Huey, the UH-1 Huey, OH-6 Alpha um, light observation helicopter, normally referred to as the Loach, and we had uh, the AH-1G, um, Bell Cobra gunship and our mission was uh, to recon an area we were we were assigned to the 4th Infantry Division so basically we reconned did air recon for the 4th Infantry and um, the loaches and the Cobras would go out um, in a particular area that they wanted they wanted uh, reconned and the loaches would fly right on the treetops um, that it would have one pilot and then one observer who was also um, uh, would carry a smoke grenade and he would have an automatic weapon so that if they took fire he'd throw the grenade and, and return fire that would give the, the loach pilot a chance to get out of the way. The, the other loach would act more like a wingman mm -hmm. for, the, for the first loach and uh, they both would carry, they both had uh, miniguns mounted on the aircraft so they could return fire as well. <clears throat> now the Cobras were active in this too. They, 
they had a, a low flying cobra who just orbited the loaches and, and a higher one. And if there was any problem, if they took fire or anything, the lower cobra would turn and dive and, and start shooting the area up. And when he broke, the, the high cobra would be right behind him. And they'd just, you know, take turns until they were kind of satisfied. So the, the purpose of the loach was literally to draw fire, to sniff out the enemy. Well, right? but, but, but actually the pilot and the, and the observer are actually looking at the ground. They're looking, trying to look through the canopy or wherever right. they are to see if they can see signs of, of enemy or... Okay. Yes, but I mean, they're... That's what happens. They're, they're sitting ducks. They're, they're sitting ducks right and they're very small. And, yeah. yeah. In the meantime, the, the Hueys, each Huey had um, anywhere from <clears throat> five to seven or eight uh, infantry troops. And we would be somewhere fairly close on the ground in a secure area on standby. So if, if they, uh, if the commander of the operation wanted to put troops on the ground to check out what the loaches have found or, uh, you know, go after the people that were shooting, uh, we would take them, put them in, go back on standby and, and wait to pull them out. So when you flew in with your, with your slick, with your guys on it, mm -hmm. you knew you were probably headed for a landing zone that was a hot landing zone because they had found a reason for you yeah. to be there. It would vary. The, the, the idea, too, was to put us to have us land somewhere that might not be, you know, as hot as the area that we wanted to go take a look at. They would, they would check that out if they thought it needed prep. Um, you know, the, the gunships would prep the, okay. the landing zone. So, you know, from that standpoint, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a hot LZ all the time, for sure. But there must have been times. When I was, was thankful for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So is your Huey armored? In some way, would you have for guns? The only, the only, oh, armed. You mean? Yes. Oh, okay. Because uh, I, I look at it, I, the I look at said, armor is you know, armed. Uh, yeah. bulletproofing. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were two uh, M60 machine guns in each door, or one in each door, yeah. and um, the the crew chief or mechanic for each individual aircraft always flew with that, with that aircraft. So he acted, you know, as a door gunner. And then there was a, a second infantry guy who was actually a designated door gunner. And he was on the other side. Okay. So if we needed suppressive fire as we were landing, you know, we had those two yeah. on each okay. Huey. Yeah. So pilot, co-pilot, crew chief, door gunner. Yep, crew of four. Now, now the crew chief, from what I understand, is a very important guy for that helicopter. Oh, uh, yeah. Very. Because he's the... He's the head mechanic, basically, to make sure that that, that ship is airworthy. You know, and I mean, that's his job. And, yeah, and you have to have confidence that he did his job, so when you get in that seat, absolutely, you, you know that that thing is airworthy. Absolutely. If we get in there and there's something wrong, he's the first guy we call. What's up with this, you know? Do you have the same crew chief all the time, or did that change? Each aircraft had the same crew chief. Okay, but you flew different. We you would fly didn't different have the same helicopter all the time. Not normally, no, no. We would fly different, different aircraft at different times. Um, just whoever you know made up the assignment for the day. Yeah. Usually our platoon leader. 
So up in that area, the Central Highlands, what's the geography like? You mentioned canopy, and I, I've read about triple canopy. Yeah. So when you were going into these landing zones, was it were they high and narrow, or were they wide? What was it? Would, like? It would vary. It would vary from you know mission to mission, no matter you know okay. depending on where we were. So you really knew how you, you had to know how to control that helicopter, whether you're going to come straight down, hover, or or go in mm -hmm. at an mm -hmm. angle or whatever. Yeah, one that comes to mind is. A, um, we we dropped uh, the we call them the blues uh, the infantry guys we dropped them in a bomb crater on the side of a very <clears throat> steep uh, you know valley uh, ravine and the only way we could do it was to was to because of the you know the way the whole thing was set up was to come in and put the front of the skids down on the outside perimeter of the bomb crater and then have these guys jump out onto that and well go wherever they went <laughs> you know it's some of them got pretty hairy you know as far as technique you probably wanted them out of that out of that uh, ship as soon as they could get out right so well our, 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 our you know the idea was not to be on the ground any longer than we had to be yeah so that as soon as you you drop them off what happened? You took? Did you stay in the area, or did you go back to base? Uh, it would depend on on what the commander thought the time frame for them being on the ground would be. Yeah. Okay. Um, on one particular incident, we we did stay in orbit, and I remember that because um, we and in the, and this was for an extended period of time, you know, maybe three four hours, uh, and. We had to peel off one ship at a time and go back and get fuel and come back, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it depended on what yeah. they were doing. What's I mentioned armor earlier. I, I, I read somewhere that some of the pilots would take off their flak jackets and put them toward the bottom of their feet someplace. Um, we didn't wear flak jackets in you my wear, unit. You, you didn't no. wear anything? No, but the seats were armored. They were? Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, they were very thick, you know, maybe three quarters to an inch thick yeah. uh, armor armor plate. Um, the sides, you know, and similar to this chair, the the side came out this way. So you had some protection. We had some protection, yeah. yeah. But Were there any rules of uh, engagement for when you were flying? Oh, In terms yeah. of what you can shoot and what you couldn't? Oh, definitely. Let's definitely. talk about that. Tell me about that. Well, um, one of the incidents that uh, has always come to mind uh, since I was there, uh, one of the loach pilots uh, popped up over a tree line or something, and, and um, let me first say that we we usually could not fire uh, unless A fired on, or if we weren't fired on. We couldn't fire on uh, a person unless it, we were, we would, well, the commander would call back and check with a, you know, provisional district center, central office type of thing to find out if there would be any friendlies in the area. Okay. So at any rate, this loach pilot pops up over the, over a tree line or something and he sees the epitome of uh, a Viet Cong soldier. Uh, black pajamas, AK-47, pith helmet, the whole deal. And he's 
He's really excited. He says, I got it. He said he's in the open. He said he's running to the tree line. Can I, can I take him? And they said, wait, wait, we have to call back, you know. So they called the division or regional headquarters, or whatever. By the time they got, they said, okay, go ahead, you know, take him. And he said, take who? He's gone, you know. And, you know, I mean, just that one incident um, really had an effect on my thoughts about what the heck we were doing. The rules of engagement, you know, like I say, we're, we're, if we're cleared to fire, that's one thing. If we're fired on, you know, we're allowed to return fire, but uh, things got so murky, it was yeah. kind of disheartening. What's it like when you're flying a helicopter and you're taking fire from the ground? What's that feel like? Uh, well, obviously it's pretty scary. Um, the adrenaline, you know, is pumping. And, uh, you know, you just count on your training and also count on your your co-pilot or the or the aircraft commander, whatever the case may be, um, to uh, to do what they've been trained to do so that we can survive. What was your worst mission? You have a, you have a memory of that? I do. Um, we were uh, we were flying. Um, we were stationed in Bami Tuat at the time. Um, which was a small city in the Central Highlands in the south, southern portion of Tukor, which is the area that we worked. Uh, there were four core sections of Vietnam as far as the MACV was concerned. And uh, I-Core was up near the border, or up near the demilitarized zone. The next one down was Tukor. Mm -hmm. That's where Plague Who was, and that's where we worked uh, during our time there. And uh, we were in the southern part, and uh, there we were very close to the, the Cambodian border. And there's a lot of fire bases. There's small villages, uh, and we were uh, just doing a mission. And there was a mechanical problem with one of the loaches. So the the one that had the mechanical problem put it put it down in this huge big field, and the the field was surrounded by. Uh, on all sides by, you know, trees and jungle type vegetation. Put it down in there, the second loach came in, landed, and the two two guys from the first aircraft jumped in the second loach, and as, a, as he was taking off, um, he got shot down. So we got four people on the ground. Um, the second aircraft burned up. Um, and then the Cobras were were there right and at that time they they scrambled us they said get out here and um so we went out and we were kind of circling the area the cobra went in to get to pick up whoever he could on skids because the the cobra was a two-place uh gunner in front of the pilot and there was no room for any passengers so they were going to pick up whoever they saw on the skids and they shot that one down so now we're, you know, the deal is we've, we're into something that we didn't intend to get into, and here we are, you know. And uh, it's kind of like all hell breaking loose. Um, so we, we eventually put our troops in uh, on a road. 
that was uh, on the on the eastern border of this this large field, and uh, they started walking around and they found uh, just bunker after bunker um, of North Vietnam North Vietnamese Army regulars. Um, and as they as they went around and scouted it out, we had uh, you know fast movers or, or jets come in and they were you know strafing the the uh, perimeter and stuff like that. But we couldn't couldn't get in there to find out where our people were or um, you know how to get them out of there. So we we eventually they called us to come uh, and it was after dark to come in and, and pick up the the blues on the road again and. Um, that was the, probably the scariest thing that, that I've ever experienced because as we're on final coming into the land on the road, you could look out in the, in the trees in the jungle on either side and see campfires, you know, and why they didn't just shoot us out of the sky, um, I have no idea, but they let us come in and pick them up and get out of there. But we didn't know that, for one. Um, we had stumbled into... Um, in operation of the NVA who were coming in to, to uh, you know, take some territory, uh, probably uh, attack and overrun fire bases and stuff like that. So um, it, was, day. it was pretty traumatic. That, that was a bad day. That, a bad day, yeah. <clears throat> we lost two, two were killed. Uh, a good friend of mine who was one of the Loach pilots who survived uh, was captured and uh, uh, two, or, two or three of them were captured. And so it was, it was a tough day. Was this name Crow Winger? Does that ring a bell? No. I read something online about a guy named Crow Winger. It doesn't matter. It was in your squad. Might have been after you were there. Mm. Um, you yourself, did you come away unscathed, no wounds, injuries? Mm-hmm. So you were fortunate. How about your crew? Any of your crew that you had? Um, no, not, none of our crew, um, none of the guys, I had a really, well, uh, Nowicki got captured and George Grega was the other pilot, he was killed. He got burned up in the, in the fire um, that ensued in the loach. Um, the, uh, the, the guys that got captured were eventually released. Um, but no, uh, as far as the the lift platoon, while I was there, no one was, you know, the lift platoon being the, the Hueys, yeah. no one was uh, was killed. But you know, we 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 lost friends in the unit for sure. So you're you're at the base. How much downtime did you have, and how much was actual flying? Um. Well, we didn't we didn't fly every day, yeah, but exactly. um, you know I'd say two thirds of the time that I was there, we flew. Yeah, you were pretty close to the Cambodian border. You mentioned that a yeah. couple of minutes ago. Did you ever fly over the border? <laughs> <laughs> pretty big issue around that time. I guess it's been long enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did one night by accident. Uh, a fellow named Benny C, who was uh, turned out to be my best friend over there. He and I were. Um, after this this whole thing, they they brought uh, they brought in Fourth uh, Infantry Division guys and uh, also the South Vietnamese Army 
came in there to to get you know to uh, uh, make contact and, and drive the NVA out. They were the 66th NVA regiment, uh, but at any rate, they were on the ground, and we had to because the radio communication uh, back to the base uh, was impossible. We actually had to fly during the night to give radio relay ability. <clears throat> and we we inadvertently flew into into Vietnam or uh, Cambodian territory. We didn't realize it at that time. Yeah, but you never had a mission there, an actual. Uh, no, not as far as when I was there. I know that it, the missions were stepped up into other countries uh, after I left. After I left the country. So you never lost a helicopter. Never got shot down. Um, we we took some fire. Some of them, some of them took fire, but never shot down. Yeah. Just just not the casual use. damage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you were there, obviously there was a lot happening domestically. Did you hear about any of the any of the okay. protest demonstrations? How do you and your friends feel about that? Well, I was uh, I I was not happy about it. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of understood it. Um, but I mean, there were, uh, you know, we got the feedback, you know, about what was happening when these guys were going back, and um, so I mean, you know, it took me a long, long time to be able to look at the peace sign without, you know, some uh, some bad feelings. Um, you know, here we are uh, doing something that we thought was uh, was honorable. And, uh, you know, people at home were, were against what we were doing, some people. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was not easy, it was tough, but we were there. I mean, it was, you know, uh, we were in the circumstance. So, like I said, you know, I, my mission was to get home, my personal mission. And uh, what was your last mission like? Do you remember it? I don't. It was, it was pretty routine. It was okay. pretty routine. What's it like to be a short timer when the clock's ticking down and you're about ready to leave? What are you thinking? Um, can't wait to get out. Um, still, the what I experienced there was uh, um, mentally like nothing else I've ever experienced. I, you know, I always had the feeling and always the sense that at any moment, you know, it could be over like that. I mean, because even though, I mean, you're in the, say, the perimeter of, of Camp Holloway or, or uh, Camp Inari, they still are, are lobbing rockets and mortars and stuff in there. So, I mean, at any given moment, you know, you can be snuffed out. So is there is there more anxiety with the downtime and with, with what you just said as opposed to the actual combat? So when you're in combat... No, no, I wouldn't no. say there's more anxiety. Combat is uh, probably... The height of my anxiousness there. Yeah. So let's talk about post Vietnam, but actually let's back up just a step. What was coming home like when you when you got back to the states? Where did um, you arrive? I came back into uh, um, McCord Air Force Base. Okay. Um, and I, you know, came through customs, and they, you know, I had to go. Uh, 
get a uh, plane ticket home, and so I flew into Oneida County Airport. It, you know, I, I I didn't have any problem. I was in uniform, but uh, nobody gave me a hard time or anything like that. You know, I just kind of kept to myself because I knew, you know, the potential was there. Mm -hmm. You know, I just if somebody talked to me, I talked to them, but I just kind of kept to myself because I, you know, I didn't want to get any conflicts or anything. So I just flew from. Uh, from there to, to Oneida County Airport, you know, with a, probably some sort of transfer in between, but the details escaped me. Um, my dad knew I was coming. I did a uh, pretty stupid thing and told him not to tell mom I'd be there. She knew I was coming at some point, but not exact date. Why was that a mistake? Uh, it was. Very emotional moment. Yeah. Dave, thought, you were. I thought she was going to have some sort of attack. Oh, really? She was shocked. <laughs> yeah. Huh? Yeah. So, yeah. So when you got back to the states, you were you you were still in the service, correct? You were still mm -hmm. in the army mm -hmm. for what, about a year or so. Well, yeah, I had a four-year commitment. So getting back from Vietnam was the the end of two. Um. I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas with a 1st Armored Division. And uh, they had, you know, they were starting to bring units back from Vietnam. They were starting to wind it down a little bit, you know, in 71 and 72. And uh, so they had so many pilots in, in the United States that didn't know what to do with us. So they started offering a, an early out. So I was offered a one-year early out. I had a four-year commitment, but at the end of three years, I was allowed to get out. Okay. So how did Vietnam impact you in your later years as time went on? The residual effect on you? Um, at times, um, it, it kind of gets to me. I mean, I, it was such a mixed thing as, as far as my experience because Certain things we did, um, I had a ball, you know. The flying was, some of the, some of the flying was just downright fun. Um, you know, for instance, uh, we, we got a, a, new, a new Huey, an updated model, and the thing had more power than anything we'd had before. And <clears throat> I was flying it one day, and we we're, we're coming back from a mission, coming back to play coup. And uh, one of my buddies that flew loaches, uh, I called them up and I said, you want to drag? And so here we're coming down a road in Vietnam and, and I'm on one side of the road and he's on the other and I've got a you know, full complement of troops in. And so somebody counted one, two, three and you know, I mean just stuff just like, like a that. drag race. It was a drag race, <laughs> yeah, with helicopters. That's funny. <laughs> and uh, he got away from me after a while but you know, I blew him, I blew him off in the beginning. But, um, so you had some fun. We, we had fun. You yeah. learned something about helicopter. You, yeah. you wanted to fly. I wanted to fly. I got the opportunity. I had some fun. And, and uh, you know, memories, they had a lot of good memories and a lot of not so good memories. Yeah. Um, I so far have escaped any, any adverse physical effects like Agent Orange, but uh, I'm constantly vigilant about uh, anything that happens to me, you have it checked out. 
because it can pop up at any time. Stay in touch with any of your friends that you that you got to know over there. I've gone to two reunions of the uh, Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association. One was in San Diego, the other in Philadelphia, and uh, our our unit, uh, the Seven Seventeenth Cav, get together. You know, like a mini reunion. Mm -hmm. You know, within the reunion. Right. And uh, so I, I did have some contact. It's not anything that I keep regular contact with. Um, just you know, people have their own life. I have mine. I, you know, every now and then somebody will get in touch. They're uh, looking for some information, you know, or verification on something. But as far as you know, um, keeping in in close contact, no. Okay. Not Good. Is there anything that you'd like to say or question you'd like to answer or something I haven't asked you? Anything you want to... Well, um, I don't know. My thoughts always come back to the fact that, uh, you know, it was an unpopular war, but, but also I don't think the American GI, um, any of the fighting forces were really... They were just always being held back. I think that um, if they were allowed to act as the military is trained in what they're trained to do, um, we could have won it easily. But the collateral damage would have been such that I don't. I don't believe. Uh, I don't believe America has the stomach for war. War is, uh, you know, it's it's. Not any fun. The purpose, I mean, the purpose of the military basically is to kill people. And in, a, in a, an environment such as Vietnam, and I, and I have the utmost respect for those people because they have, they have survived for so long being attacked by different people. And, I mean, they, this guerrilla warfare thing that we ran into there, uh, the tunnel systems, just the... The resupply ventures, the the participation of the civilian population. You know, um, they're just you know they're they're into it to save their country, and to to basically win that thing um, would be uh, something that that America would not want to participate in. I think your example of of the of the Viet Cong guy in that field, and they had to ask permission to shoot him, mm -hmm. says it all about yeah, yeah. the and restrictions I, and fighting with one hand tied behind your back. Right, right. Is there's no way you can win a war with that kind of strategy? No, no. I wouldn't think. I uh, I came away with a with a feeling that we have these people that we train in the military um, to do a job, but yet once they get into the situation when and I saw it in Vietnam, I saw it, I saw it happen. That they are constrained by politicians, and to me, that's ludicrous. You know, it would be like, uh, you know, like Joe Blow off the street um, going in and telling, you know, telling the, uh, you know, the people in Washington that that. that you know, they don't know what they're doing either. You know, I can do a better job than you can, which may, may not be the, far from the truth, but, um, you know, they're not, they're not trained for military action and why they, 
you know, why politicians get to, to uh, you know, make specific calls uh, in regards to specific actions is beyond me. Well, thanks for coming in, Dave. I really appreciate My pleasure. it. My pleasure. Thank you for your service. Ralph, thank you very much. That's another story for Little Falls Vietnam veterans. Until the next time, I'm Ralph Rensilli. Thank you.